Good morning, if you would, grab a Bible and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 20. John, chapter 20, where we'll begin this time of our worship, John, chapter 20. So good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors with us. Thank you for being here. I want you to know that we're always excited to have visitors. You're always welcome, and we'd love to get to know you better. We'd love for you to come back. We'd love to be able to help in any way that we can, but most of all, we're glad that you're here with us to worship God and to think about these things as we open the Bible together. Appreciate Daniel so much and the songs that he has led for us that really do well to set up what we're going to talk about this morning. And I just want to remind you that the song that we've just sung had some very powerful affirmations in it. We said that we believe a lot of things because we believe in Jesus. And we believe certain things about Jesus and what he did. And those things are going to become more and more relevant as we think about what we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning. John chapter 20 and verse 30. John chapter 20 and verse 30, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Our theme for this year, our preaching theme is revisiting the foundations, that we're going to go back and look at some of the first principles ...of what it means to be a Christian. And I told you when I introduced this series... ...that we were going to talk first about Jesus... ...and then we were going to talk about the Bible... ...and then we were going to talk about what we are going to call Christian responses... ...or what we need to do as a result of what we learn about Jesus and the Bible. And I told you that one of the first things I wanted to talk about... ...what was going to be the first sermon... ...was about the question, did Jesus really exist... ...or did Jesus really live and die... And so I did some work on that and studied up pretty good, and I came to the conclusion it was about, oh, Wednesday or Thursday of that week, that there was not a sermon there, at least not one worth preaching. Here's what I found when I, when I researched that topic. Did Jesus really live and die? I found that everyone, and by everyone I mean, of course, believers in Jesus, but also non-believers, academics, scholars, Atheists, everyone with the exception of just a handful of conspiracy theorists believes that Jesus was a real man who lived, who taught, who did miracles or at least was purported to do miracles, who gathered a following and who was executed by crucifixion. And shortly thereafter, everyone agrees that a movement spread claiming that that Jesus was still alive, even though the Roman government had seen to it that he was dead. And we have lots of confirmation for that that exists even today from contemporary sources. We have, for example, the words of Josephus, the Jewish historian, who lived around the time of the early church. We have a very early reference by a Roman historian named Suetonius and another Roman historian named Tacitus. Then we have some some letters later on from Pliny the Younger that describe Christian rites. And we have all of that information. We have a lot of references to Jesus very early on in the Talmud, the Jewish book that describes certain things in the Torah. On and on we have references. We have things that we would expect to find if Jesus was a real person. So there you go. There's that sermon. Took me about 30 seconds, maybe a minute. I decided maybe that wasn't the best thing to preach on. And so it seemed to me that the more important question then becomes... If Jesus is a real person who lived and died, well, can we believe what we know about him from the Gospels? Of course, the most significant 
source of information about Jesus is what we have in our hands. These four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell about Jesus' life and tell about what happened to him, what he taught, and then how he died and how he rose again. So, I wanted to talk for a few minutes this morning about a key element that John brings out. As he says in John chapter 20 and verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, but verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John refers to signs, miracles, things Jesus did that prove something about him. Sign is something that points to something else. It points to a reality. And in this case, the signs or miracles of Jesus point to the reality of Jesus' identity and the salvation that he offers in his name, in that identity. And so it is essential for us to be able to know whether we can trust and understand the miracles of Jesus. Were they real? Or not? Can we really believe in miracles like these in a scientific age like the one that we live in? Can we really believe in miracles like these when we have never seen anything like this? We have never observed it. We have never done it. Can we really believe that Jesus did it? And so I want to spend a few minutes this morning simply revisiting or re-examining the miracles of Jesus. And we're going to do this in two parts. We're going to talk about in the first part why Jesus did miracles. What was the purpose, especially what is the purpose according to the gospel writers of these different miracles? And then I want to spend some time at the end of our lesson telling you why I believe in Jesus' miracles. So first of all, why Jesus worked miracles. The first reason I would give from the gospels is that Jesus worked miracles to show that God was with him. In John chapter 20 and verse 31, what we just read, John 20 and verse 31, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. His miracles are connected to something about His identity, that He is the Christ, the Messiah, and that He is the Son of God, that He has a unique connection to God. That's what the signs prove. Go with me back to John chapter 3 for a moment. John chapter 3. We're going to spend some time in this little session, in this little section, going through some of John. And I'm just going to read them pretty rapid fire here, so I hope you'll get your Bible open. We're going to look at some passages in succession in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 and verse 2. John chapter 3 and verse 2. This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus believes that Jesus is a teacher sent from God. Why? Because no one can do these things you do unless God is with him. That's the reason, and that is the reason that undergirds miracles in the Bible, particularly Jesus' miracles. They are proof that he is doing things no mere human could do. Therefore, Nicodemus decides God must be with you. In John chapter 5, John chapter 5 and verse 36 John chapter 5 and verse 36, Jesus himself says, But the testimony I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So, he says, the works bear witness about the Father who sent me. So he is saying, when you see my miracles, you see my unique relationship to the Father. I am sent by God. I am empowered by God. And that idea is the subtext beneath which 
which rests beneath everything that is about a challenge to Jesus' miracles. When they ask him for a sign, they are saying, you say God's with you, prove it. And that's the question. Is God really with you? Can you do things that only God could do? Turn the page to John 6. In John 6 and verse 28, this is after Jesus has made the bread to feed 5,000 out of only five loaves and two fish. In John 6 and verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So here is the idea. You want us to believe, prove yourself. Show us that you were sent by God. I know a great miracle. Make us some bread. That would be great. Of course, these are people who are seeking him because they had bread the day before and they want some more free bread. But, but here's the problem. You've got to prove that God's with you, Jesus. You can't just say that. If you want us to believe in you, show us a sign. And it's important that as Jesus performs miracles, he regularly gives glory to God for the miracle. Turn over to John 11. In John 11, he shows us this. John 11, this is as Jesus is at the tomb of Lazarus. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. John 11 and verse 41, it says, So they took away the stone, John eleven forty one, 41, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So, do you see what Jesus does here? He prays openly so that everyone will know the one who is doing this work is God. I know that you always hear me, but I said this for everyone around me so that they would believe that you sent me, so that they would believe God is with me. Here are a couple other passages that affirm this same point. This is Acts 2 and verse 22 where Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. The idea there is God has approved him or attested him. He has confirmed or validated him. He is legitimate because God is with him and God did works through him in your midst. The miracles prove God's presence. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 3 and 4 how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. God bore witness by doing signs and wonders and miracles. The miracles prove that God was with him. So... What we're learning here is that by definition, a miracle is something that no mere man could accomplish and that that is essential to the idea of the miracle. So we're not going to get far by trying to explain how miracles didn't really happen as miracles. Sometimes if you ever watch the History Channel, there will be specials on the History Channel about, oh, you know, the ten plagues, for example. And I remember years back, seeing on the History Channel about the ten plagues, and they would say, well, the plague where Moses turns the water to blood. 
See, that's really about a certain kind of algae that turns the Nile red sometimes. And so the, the, the effort is to find natural explanations. The problem with that is that's exactly what a miracle is not. A miracle is not an occasional thing that sometimes happens or something that you can't explain because you don't know enough about the, how the Nile works. A miracle is by definition something that only God can do. So if we're searching for those natural explanations, the point of the text is that it's not natural. That's the point. Otherwise, it wouldn't have to be a miracle, and it wouldn't prove that God was with the one performing the miracle. The other part is just that Jesus does not present himself as a really well-educated healer. He does not present himself as some kind of magician, as some kind of do-it-yourself exorcist. Jesus presents himself as a conduit through which God is going to work. He presents himself as someone whom God sent and with whom God was with so that he could do God's works and then ultimately achieve God's purposes. So Jesus worked miracles, secondly, to show that the messianic kingdom has come. I want you to go with me to the book of Luke, chapter 4. In Luke 4, the messianic kingdom is an important idea that the Old Testament foretells that God is going to come and bring His anointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, and that He is going to come and sit on the throne of David and that He is going to reestablish the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus comes, His message is that the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom has come. And Jesus is often called the king. In fact, it is the charge that's put over his head on the cross. The king of the Jews. Because Jesus taught that the kingdom had come through him. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. This is as Jesus goes back home to Nazareth. Luke 4, 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Just imagine you could hear a pin drop in that synagogue. Jesus says, Everything that you have heard about that the Messiah was going to do and be is coming to pass right now and you can see it. Jesus had begun to do these miracles. And he says, look at this passage from Isaiah. That's me. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And remember, the word Messiah means the anointed one. And here, look at what the Messiah is going to do in verse 18. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed. And Jesus does that in ways spiritual and physical. Yes, he certainly sets at liberty those who are oppressed by sin and by the devil, but he also gives sight to the physically blind. And he sets free those who are possessed by demons. 
Jesus' miracles show that what Isaiah prophesied about, that messianic kingdom, has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's here, and you need to wake up to it. Go with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. The idea is that there were certain glorious works that were going to accompany the Messiah so that everyone would know when the Messiah came. And Jesus fulfills those prophecies and expectations by his miracles. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2. Matthew 11 and verse 2, it says, Now when John, this is John the Baptist, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So John sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah or not? And Jesus does not simply say, yes. He says, tell John what you see and hear. Look at what's going on. Evidently, they come upon Jesus in one of those sessions he had where he would heal people and teach and heal, and it would last all day. You could just imagine if we were to say there's someone here with legitimate healing power, how many people in this city would flood wherever we were, how long it would take to see all the people who need healing and help. And so as Jesus is doing all of this, he says to these disciples of John, just tell him, tell him what you see, tell him what you're hearing. And he gives them the expectation. Uh, I'm sorry, he gives them the words in verse 4. Verse 5, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf hear. He talks to them about miracles. If you want to know if I'm the coming one, he says, look at what I'm doing. The miracles declare that the messianic kingdom has come. John is expected to be convinced by that. The Messiah is coming. And if you doubt it, look at the miracles. Turn the page to Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22. Matthew 12 and verse 22 says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Notice two things here. First of all, when Jesus casts out the demon, there are some there who call him, verse 23, the son of David. That is a messianic title. Could this be the Messiah? But there are others, verse 24, who say, no, it is by Beelzebul. It's by Satan that he casts out Satan. So instead of being from God or God being with him, he says, no, Satan is with him. Did you notice what's missing in the reaction? Nobody says, you didn't really cast out that demon. Nobody says, that's not really a demon, that's a mental illness. Nobody says, oh, he's just a charlatan, this is all pretend. Do you notice that? There is an absence of that. In fact, it's not just an absence in the Gospels. It's also an absence in the contemporary records among those who are enemies of Jesus. No one denies that he's doing miracles. Instead, they argue he's doing miracles for the wrong reason or with the wrong power. And that's important. Because that means this is the charge against Jesus. So, Jesus puts to rest that idea that he 
does this by the power of Beelzebub, because, of course, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But look down in verse 28 of Matthew 12. In verse 28, it says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I really am casting out demons, if these miracles are true, then the messianic kingdom has come. The kingdom of God is upon you. And so Jesus is doing these miracles so that the people have no doubt that God is finally acting in the way he promised in the Old Testament and that the kingdom has come. Now, it may look different than what they were expecting. Certainly, even these fulfillments were not what they were expecting, but the messianic kingdom has come. So this explains John's statement that we began with, that we can see these signs and that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing we can have life in his name because the kingdom has come. And the third reason why Jesus worked miracles is to produce faith. Go with me to Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. So there is a complicated relationship, and I need to spend a little time on this. There is a complicated relationship between miracles and faith. Because there are some indications that Jesus wants there to be faith before he will perform a miracle. And and that's where we are in Matthew chapter 13. If you look at the last verse, Matthew 13 and verse 58, this is when he goes back to Nazareth again. It says, And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So there seems to be a connection between the faith of the person he's performing the miracle for and the miracle, which is not the idea of producing faith. If it was to produce faith, he would just do the miracle and then they would begin to believe. Instead, this seems to be contingent on their faith. Another example in chapter 15 of Matthew, in chapter 15, in verse 21. Matthew 15 and verse 21 says, Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you, or be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So this woman has faith. Jesus calls it great faith. And it's demonstrated in the fact that she keeps begging Jesus for this miracle, even though Jesus keeps putting her off and putting her off. And ultimately, he says, all right, enough. Great is your faith. Let, you, let it be to you as you desire. Jesus heals her daughter because she believes. And we can talk about several different occasions like that. Like when the paralytic's friends break a hole in the roof and lower him down before Jesus And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to him, your sins are forgiven you. Or we can talk about the time when Jesus says this of the centurion, who says, Jesus, you don't even need to come in my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And he says, I've never seen such great faith, not even in Israel. And we could say, well, look, there it is. Faith is the currency that gets you a miracle. But. I think that the more accurate way to describe this is to say that the primary function of miracles is to produce faith and not just reward faith. The primary function, when we see miracles in the New Testament, the primary function of Jesus' miracles 
is to say, when people walk away from the miracle, what are they thinking and how are they changed? It produces faith in him and faith in the God who is empowering him. That, I believe, is the function of Jesus' miracles. Let me show you that. Look in Mark chapter 4 with me. Mark 4. Mark 4, beginning in verse 35. Mark 4 and 35 says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with him those, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want you to notice how they leave this scene. Who then is this? The text also says that they were filled with great fear. Where Jesus has challenged them and he says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Now they do fear, but they fear him rather than the storm. They are changed by this miracle. In fact, it seems to me that they understand more about Jesus afterward, far more than they did before, even though they've been with him for some time at this point. And I believe that is the point of miracles. You have these examples of people who, after observing Jesus doing something like this, they come to believe something different about the man. They are changed by it. So you have the disciples, when they see Jesus turning water to wine, it says they believed in him. The blind man, when he comes and finds Jesus, when Jesus comes and finds him after he has healed him, he says, Lord, I believe. Over and over again, people who have the miracles done to them or people who observe the miracles, they have a deeper faith than they did before. And sometimes that seems to me to be the goal as well. Maybe it's not just the idea of producing faith, but producing faith on a deeper level. Have you noticed how Jesus' miracles... They, they sort of, each one opens up a new vista of how much power Jesus has. So where in the beginning the disciples can see Jesus healing, and they say, wow, that's amazing, look what he's doing. Then they see him heal a paralytic, which is another level. And then they see him heal not just blind people, but the man born blind, who himself says, this has never been heard of, that something like this could be done. They see him cast out demons, and then after he empowers them to cast out demons, he casts out demons they can't cast out. And then they get in a boat, and he falls asleep, and he tells the, the waves to quiet down. And then one time he's just he's going off to pray, and he decides he'll just walk across the Sea of Galilee. What do you think they're thinking when they see this? They ask questions like this. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Now he can take five loaves and two fish and, and feed this giant crowd. And so there comes the point where we begin to say, well, 
as Mary and Martha say, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But oh well, you weren't here. And you begin to ask the question, well, does it matter that he wasn't here? Can he still do something about it? And so Jesus even raises the dead. And each miracle, each miracle just broadens, just heightens how much he can do. That there is no limit to his power. And so people begin to believe. But I have to follow that up with this important caveat. Not everybody believes. Some people see Jesus raising Lazarus and they run off and tattle on him. Some people see Jesus' miracles and they say, show us another sign. Give us some more bread. Some people see Jesus' miracles and they seem to see nothing about the miracle except the fact that he did it on the Sabbath. And that was the wrong day to do miracles. As if there is a wrong day to do miracles. Not everyone believes. Because miracles are not some kind of foolproof faith guarantee. And yet they do produce faith. And I'll just add one more thought to this. There are some miracles that appear to me to be symbolic in their meaning. I believe Jesus also had this ability to take a miracle and make it a lesson and take a lesson and make it a miracle. As in the case with the, the fig tree that he curses as he enters Jerusalem, which I believe represents the fruitless nation of Israel that he's coming to judge. Or when he feeds the, the crowd of 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And then he begins to teach about how he is the bread of life. There is something unique about the miracles Jesus uses. And how they're connected to his unique teaching. But all of that is to say, when Jesus has done working the miracle, he leaves behind something that endures he leaves behind people who believe in him and are in an ongoing discipleship relationship with him. So, if any of the miracles that we read about in the Bible at the hands of Jesus are not legitimate miracles, if they are little tricks or if they are deceptive or if they are overblown, then none of these purposes is achieved. God really wasn't with him. The messianic kingdom really hasn't come. And faith in him is a lie. You can see why this matters. But these are the reasons why Jesus worked miracles. I want to take a few minutes now and tell you why I believe in Jesus' miracles. First of all, I believe in Jesus' miracles and the accounts in the Gospels because there are some things that nature can't explain. We can explain a lot about our existence and a lot about our biology we can document a lot of things about the natural world. And yet there are some things that are left without explanation. So science cannot explain, for example, how our universe came to exist. Now there is explanation as to perhaps the beginning and the Big Bang, but not the how and the cause. There was a point before the laws of the universe that we now observe. But how did the world order itself? How did it come to be? We don't know. And there are things that we live with that we cannot explain and that nature cannot explain. Sometimes we call them freak things. 
Sometimes we would say there are medical anomalies. But there are areas of life that are just a little beyond what is natural. So, if there are things that we cannot explain by nature, there is room for miracle. There is room for there to be things that subvert the natural order, especially when that is the whole point. But what we're really talking about when I make this statement is we're talking about assumptions and biases. That if we approach the Bible with the idea that that I could never believe in something that I have not observed, then we won't come out of it believers in God. If we approach the Bible and we say, unless you prove it, I won't believe it, then we'll never come out with an understanding of Jesus that is according to what's in the Gospels. The idea here is that there may be something that we cannot duplicate and that we have not experienced and yet nonetheless is true. And I believe that that's possible. So the fact that we can't document and remeasure miracles does not mean they didn't happen. Any more than any historical event cannot be documented and recreated. That's just not the way the world works. There are some things that nature can't explain. Second, and I I say this at the risk of being irreverent, so I hope you don't think I'm being irreverent, but I'll just say ancient people weren't stupid. The other bias that we sometimes approach the New Testament and documents of antiquity with is that in some way these people had no idea what they were doing or talking about. They had no idea the way we do. We are so enlightened. We know so much. Science has uncovered so much. We have learned so much. We are so civilized. They could never tell us something and it be true today. We've outgrown it, so we think. Ancient people weren't stupid. Ancient people knew that water didn't become wine. Ancient people knew that five loaves and two fish doesn't feed 5,000 people. Ancient people knew that people didn't rise from the dead any more then than they do today. They didn't look around and say, well, you know, my aunt did for a little while. They're just like we are. They knew how the world worked, and that's why the miracles were miracles. Because they weren't the way the world worked. They were the opposite of the way the world worked. That's why they were so amazed. That's why they said some explanation has to be here besides what I know. Because this is something beyond the experience of humanity. The witnesses of Jesus' miracles didn't marvel because they saw things like this all the time. They saw something happen they had never seen and could not explain, and they had to tell people about it. And it is notable that when we see miracles recorded in all the four Gospels and in the contemporary sources, no one disputes them. No one says, oh, no, that didn't really happen. No one says, oh, he was a charlatan. Not until later, at least. Ancient people weren't stupid. And if we come to the Bible with the assumption that these people were ignorant, then we'll never come out of it with the faith their testimony was intended to produce. Third, I believe in Jesus' miracles because the witness accounts are very careful and restrained. Sometimes I ask the question, what, if I were making up the story, what would I do? What would it be like? I mean, if we had a figure like Jesus to make up stories about, the stories we could tell. What would Jesus do? 
What kind of miracles would he perform? How would he get vengeance on his enemies? I mean, that would be the fun one. Have you noticed that the Gospels really don't read that way? They're not fantastic. They're not way outside the realm of possibility, except in the things that are actually done. They are careful and restrained. How many people do you think, if you were writing about Jesus, how many people would he raise from the dead? There are three people in the Gospels that are raised from the dead. Not including Jesus, of course. And when he does it, he, he does it in a place like Nain to, to a widow who's just lost her only son. Jesus does it in a way that you look around and, and all the details fit. This is just like what an ancient funeral would be. He has compassion on this poor woman and, and he does it and the people are all, of course, floored. And that's the end of the story. We also don't get accounts that, that Jesus becomes the most popular figure in history, which is what would happen if I were writing it. Instead, it's very legitimate. It says, no, some people just didn't believe, even when they saw amazing things. In fact, when I read the Gospels, it, it reads just exactly as if what I would expect would really happen in reality really did. The witnesses then suffered for their testimony. So if you wrote a nice story and then you were called on to give an account for it and you were going to die for your story, what would you do? Dying for a story that you made up makes no sense. Particularly, of course, it was Jesus' resurrection from the dead that they bore the most witness to. But the suffering lends credibility to their testimony. Why would we suffer for something that we made up? The miracles also dovetail with the messianic passages. This convinces me because there are statements in those messianic passages about giving sight to the blind and releasing the bound that, that it would be so much easier to say we're spiritual rather than physical, wouldn't it? You know, giving sight to the blind, that just means teaching people. See, I can teach people. I don't have to make anybody who is blind suddenly see. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus fulfills them literally and physically when that is so much more difficult. And then it proves the spiritual side of the Messiah and the kingdom. His miracles are inseparable from his teaching. Jesus links these two together. We cannot... Please hear me. We cannot just like the teaching of Jesus and then leave it alone. Miracles and teaching are one and the same. They come from the same source. They are attested by the same authors. And I, for one, I believe that the teaching of Jesus is the most amazing thing that has ever happened on this earth. I am constantly in awe of the teaching of Jesus. And I know many people are in awe of the teaching of Jesus who don't ever come to faith in him. Because somewhere along the way, they take that incredible teaching and they chop off all the miracles and they say, I just want the teaching. I can't believe in him in who he said he was. And I am saying, I believe in the miracles of Jesus because he links those two things together. The miracles and the teaching are the same. In fact, he taught about his miracles. So what are we going to do with that? We can either throw them both out or accept them both, but we can't chop them in half and take one and leave the other. And finally, I believe in Jesus' miracles because his miracles are intended to produce faith. They have a point. They have a goal. They have a direction. And when I look around, I, I observe that I live in the same universe that Jesus lived in. I see the same things he saw. 
I see trees and pigs and bread just like he did. And yet he did amazing things with those things. They became in his hands something incredibly powerful to teach me about me and to teach me about God. And the God who is responsible for bringing all of it into existence is perfectly capable of manipulating it as he sees fit. And so that leads me to believe in a Savior who lived above the world he made. Now that might not be convincing to you, but as I thought about that, I thought these are things that need to be said and affirmed in our time. When some believe that science has discounted the idea of the miracles of Jesus, and some believe that we can't trust the testimony of the ancients, and some believe that teaching and miracles are somehow different things. So Jesus presents his miracles as a part of his identity, and therefore they're a part of our faith. And so I want to say emphatically, it is perfectly reasonable to live in a scientific age and to believe in the miracles of Jesus. It is perfectly reasonable for us to say, based on the evidence of this book, that Jesus really is the Messiah and that the hope he holds out still exists for us. It leads us to talk about the greatest sign, the greatest miracle, which is the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about that for the next couple of hours. I'm just kidding. We're done for this morning. Thank you so much for your attention. We will talk about that at our next session, which will probably be in the first part of March. But thank you so much for your attention. I want to say, in this study, I know that we have touched on some things that are, are somewhat technical. But at the end of the day, the goal is that we'll come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in His name. And if there is someone here who as they've read through these passages, as they thought about their lives, they want to give their life to Jesus. They want to put their faith in Him. We want nothing more than to help you do that. If you're ready to come and to be baptized into Christ, have your sins washed away, we stand ready to help you. Is there anything we can do? Please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.